So this morning we are starting a new series. We've uh, just finished the series on 1 Peter. And so we're getting ready to start uh, this new series on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' teaching in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, it's a little bit early. Um, Lent doesn't start for another couple of weeks, but Lent is a season of discipleship. And so for us, uh, getting into Jesus' Sermon on the Mount as we head towards Easter and celebrating the fact that he is not dead, that he is risen. And so, uh, beginning with this, you know, I was thinking about some this week about the term disciple and how in our culture it's sort of gotten elevated um, too high. And what I mean by that is disciple has become almost like a category of super-Christian. You know, if you are a disciple, then you're, you know, uh, you're maybe a little too extreme or you're really devoted and I'm never going to be one of those. I, can't, I couldn't do it even if I wanted to. And so disciples almost got elevated too high. And actually, I don't think that's what Jesus ever meant. He meant for disciples to be all of us, every person in this room who follows Jesus to be a disciple. He meant that to be for all of us. And so I've been thinking about different words that we use in our culture today that are maybe get at it a little bit better. One of them is like an apprentice uh, following Jesus that you learn not just in a classroom, but you learn by following and by watching what he does and to be mentored. And so the title of our series uh, for the next few week is, uh, weeks is Mentored. And I was thinking about this, about an image of what it's like to be mentored or to be an apprentice. And I was thinking some of, of Dave Ringheim. His job, he's a teacher at the college. He teaches fine woodworking. You know, and I've talked with him enough that he's told me, you know, that sometimes he has lectures where he teaches the students about wood and, and different techniques and theory and those sort of things. But they spend a lot of time actually working with wood as well making projects, building tables, building amazing uh, things in the fine woodworking class. This is kind of the, the image that I want for us to hold with us as we walk uh, through this Sermon on the Mount. This is not just theory for us, not just food for thought or theology to kind of mull over, but actually a way to live, a way for us to follow Jesus. So um, we keep going, and I was just thinking, I wanted to just make this point, is that, you know, you have your bulletin inserts. Let me just see if I have that slide. Okay, so you have your bulletin inserts. Um, please take notes. The next few weeks are going to be a discipleship um, focus. And so take notes on the inside there, on the right side, just says uh, sermon notes. I want you to be writing in there the things that you hear, the things that you're learning as we go through this series. Um, that, you know, you can, you can sit and passively learn and take away things. The Spirit does that. You remember things like, oh, this is the thing I took away. Or we can also actively learn. And I'm asking you uh, for the next few weeks to actively learn where you're writing things down, you're taking notes, and learning from what Jesus is teaching us. All right. So I've been thinking some about this week, and I'm thinking about this, um, and as I've been studying, the Holy Spirit has been urging me for the last while to focus on discipleship. Part of it is because we have new people who have uh, become a part of our church in the last few months. Um, people have been baptized, people becoming members, um, new people just showing up. And so I wanted to talk some about discipleship and how important that is. But I've also been convicted this last week. Um, I spent a lot of time praying and focusing on mission. And I was thinking some about it, how uh, it's, I feel like I kind of go through the, our community looking for apple, looking for fruit, on wild apple trees. You know, and they, there's a few here and there, but I spent a lot of time scouring the area looking for fruit. And I started thinking, you know, um, one of the ways you can gather fruit is by scouring and looking for apples, and I'm not going to give that up. I continue to, um, I'm convinced and feel it's an important part of my life of who God has called me to be is to be a missionary in this community. But I also realized that if you really want fruit, um, 
You look at like the Okanagan, how do they get fruit? They make orchards. They cultivate the ground, they cultivate the trees, and they have lots of apple trees and lots of apple fruit, or lots of apple, lots of fruit. And so I've been thinking some of it as an analogy for me about discipleship, that we spend time cultivating the orchard here, uh, metaphorically speaking, the church, that we grow as disciples in Jesus. And I think it's also the healthiest way to go about mission. Um, because I know that you are, most of you are engaged in some way in mission in our community. And when we are disciples, I, I take Jesus at his word, that when we are salt and light, people will see the good things we do and they will give praise to our Father in heaven. And so we do that. We get this praise for God, for Father in heaven, by faithfulness, by us faithfully following Jesus. So maybe the question is, you know, where do we begin? You know, how do we do this? And I've been drawn to the Sermon on the Mount. I love the Sermon on the Mount. I actually took a whole course on the Sermon on the Mount when I was in seminary. Um, not only that, it's, uh, this is where Jesus begins. In Matthew's Gospel, this is Jesus' like, first major block of teaching is the Sermon on the Mount. So in a lot of ways, this is foundational for us. Not only that, but there's been tons of books that have been written on the Sermon on the Mount, especially in terms of discipleship. Think about like, one of the books I'm reading alongside of my study is John Stotts. It's, originally, his book was called Christian Counterculture. It's since been changed to uh, the Bible for today, um, and a series on Sermon on the Mount. A famous book, many of you have heard of Dallas Willard. He was a professor down in California who wrote The Divine Conspiracy, which is a book on faithfulness and spiritual practices that is organized alongside the Sermon on the Mount. Some of you have heard of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's uh, famous book, Disciple, or The Cost of Discipleship. That book, too, is also structured on the Sermon on the Mount. So the Sermon on the Mount has been a huge part of Christian uh, tradition, the Christian church, um, and many of the books on discipleship are organized around the Sermon on the Mount. So we begin, in a sense, where Jesus begins, where he begins teaching. I've been thinking about this week. When was the last time you asked that question? You know, as you start thinking about some of you have been following Jesus for a lot of years. Some of you have been following Jesus longer than I have been alive. And you're wondering... Uh, maybe you've asked the question, you know, where does Jesus begin? In terms of discipleship, where does Jesus begin? Some of you have been following Jesus for less than a year, and you are new to this faith. And maybe you are literally wondering, where do I start? <laughs> what do I begin with? Well, that's why I love the Word of God. The Word of God is good. It answers real-life questions for us. Um, not only does it teach us theology, like who God is and how God works, but also teaches us how to live, how to live faithfully and follow him. So let's dig into this passage. All right, if you want to, you can open your bulletins. On the left side, there's the, the passage we're going to be working with today, uh, Matthew 5, 1 to 20. But let's just take this first piece here, okay? So it says, Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them, saying, now, the first thing is when it says he went up on a mountainside, the word uh, here, if, if we were more Jewish, uh, we might first start thinking like, oh, there's a few people who've gone up on a mountainside and done some amazing things. And the most uh, famous of them was Moses. And so um, I think already Matthew, recording this detail for us, and Jesus actually teaching on a mountainside, there's some significance here. All right? But also it says this too, uh, in the last days... Um, this comes from Isaiah 2.2, 2, 2, sorry, 2.3. In the last days, many people will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And so already we're seeing this, um, 
this idea, this hope, this, this forward-looking, this prophecy speaking about um, God teaching people, God teaching his people from the mountain. So already we're seeing these connections, these powerful things kind of swirling about as Jesus goes up onto this mountain and begins teaching. Then he says this, he says, uh, his disciples came to him. I just want to say, you know, at very least we know this is uh, his 12 disciples, but um, this could also be hundreds, maybe even a thousand or more people gathered around him on this mountain. Uh, as he begins teaching about what it means to follow him. Then he keeps going. He says these things. He begins, this is how he begins the Sermon on the Mount. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Now I have to say, I have to give lots of credit to... um, uh, Dale Bruner, who is a professor at Whitworth College, um, who I actually went to Whitworth College, and I'm um, following his commentary on Matthew, which has been really helpful for me. And he makes these, um, this great distinction here uh, about the kind of categorizing the, the first Beatitudes. And so if you notice these, the first thing that uh, we see here is the word blessed. Blessed. Now, Different people have tried to kind of get at what that means. Some people have translated it as happy. Um, and there's some good reason why I don't think happy is such a great one because um, Jesus isn't saying, he's not talking about what they're already experiencing because you can be poor in spirit and not be so happy today. But it doesn't change the fact that you are blessed. blessed. And I think what actually blessed gets at here is this, this heavenly reality or this kingdom reality of who we are despite the world that we live in, despite how things look on the surface. Now, some people have talked to you about the Sermon on the Mount being very legalistic. Um, you know, that's just a bunch of rules. And I, you know, some people have even, I think it was actually Luther, who said that the Sermon on the Mount is so impossible for humans to live that it's actually just meant to drive us back to realize that we um, can't do it and so to drive us back to God and rely on his grace. Um, I don't think so. I think Jesus actually taught these words taught these or said these things expecting that we would follow him and live them. So, but some people have said to that extent that they said, well, the Sermon on the Mount is just a bunch of rules. Isn't that pretty legalistic? Well, if you look at how Jesus begins, blessed are the poor in spirit. He doesn't begin with, well, you guys have messed up and now I'm here to fix you. He doesn't begin with, blessed are the people who get it all right. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek or the humble, and blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So the first few things here are focused on um, conditions, external things that are, that are hard for people, that have maybe humiliated people. The other thing I wanted to point out too is that the first beatitude begins like this. Um, blessed are the poor in spirit, uh, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He's saying this is already, it's already in present tense, which you may think, now, Jason, that's kind of a, you know, very precise detail, but it's important. Because the rest of them say, um, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. They will inherit the earth. They will be filled. has its future orientation. But the first one, blessed are the poor in spirit, is present right now. For theirs is already, right now, the kingdom of heaven. So there's this now and not yet aspect to Jesus, what he's teaching here. This is a a heavenly promise that has uh, consequences right now in our current reality. 
All right. So if you look at all of these together, these are kind of generally people who have had hard things happen to them. And it speaks about uh, theirs being the kingdom of heaven, this vertical grace. They've received grace from God despite how hard things are for them. Then Jesus says this. He says, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God and daughters of God, for that matter. So the first few are sort of this vertical, this receiving of grace. Then the next three, the blessings are for people who are faithful, kind of in a horizontal sense, who are already doing things, who are already serving God and helping others. People who are merciful and showing mercy. People who are pure in heart. People who are peacemaking. I see these as people who are faithful, and my hunch is, is because they've already received the grace of the first four Beatitudes. Because in their difficult situation of life, these are people, these are Christians who are just a little bit further down the track, who've already received grace from Christ, grace from Jesus, grace from God, blessings, and they're already beginning to change the way they live, to be merciful, to be um, pure in heart, and to be peacemakers. So Jesus is making this, uh, these sort of, um, sort of two groups. These are for the people. Uh, blessed are you when you are faithful, when you follow Jesus faithfully. Then he says this. He says, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So again, uh, the fact that it's already theirs. This is for people who are persecuted now. And he says this. He says that this idea that the kingdom is now, it's already here, it's present, even though it's not fully here. And then this. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So I want to just point this out here. He says, blessed are you. So all the other blessings have been people generally. Blessed are people when they generally do these things. And now Jesus says specifically to you, to each of you, blessed are you. Blessed are you when people insult you or persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. The blessing now comes to you. And he says, make sure, though, that it's also for holy reasons. When you're persecuted because of righteousness or when you're persecuted because of Jesus. Not when you're persecuted because you are self-righteous or because you are judgmental or hypocritical, but when you are righteous or when you because of Jesus. And it's interesting, we've been studying First Peter for the last few months, working through that, and it's consistent with Peter's message to the churches of Asia Minor. Blessed are you when you are persecuted but for good things, for faithfully following Jesus. You know, he says, if you've done something wrong, Peter says this uh, to the churches in Asia Minor in the book of First Peter, if you've done something wrong, of course you're going to face uh, opposition from people. But when you face opposition because you follow Jesus, that's different. And he says this, he says, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. Wait, what, what a minute? Like, like, rejoice and be glad because I'm facing persecution? We do that. We rejoice and we, and, and we are glad because great is our reward in heaven. And it's interesting because I'm thinking about this week. It, this week it occurred to me of, you know, Peter, long before he wrote First Peter, he was sitting on this mountain with Jesus, hearing Jesus teach these things. 
about being persecuted for following Jesus and how to rejoice and be glad in that because great is your reward. And that's pretty much what Peter says throughout his whole letter to the churches of Asia Minor. Just to see how faithful Peter is. So not only is he hearing Jesus teaching and, and internalizing himself, he's actually years later, decades later, in the book of First Peter, we see him teaching that to other churches in Asia Minor. As great as your reward in heaven. All right, so you're following along in your uh, bulletin. There are a hundred different ways Jesus could have started. He could have started with, uh, you dirty rats. You've really blown it this time, and you need to change your ways. He could have started with, blessed are you when you finally get it all figured out. Then you'll be okay. But he doesn't start there. He starts with grace. Jesus begins with grace. He says this, blessed are the low, that's the first four. Blessed are the faithful, the next three, and the persecuted, the last two. Blessed are you. And Jesus begins with grace. So I'm looking at time. And I just want to see how you guys are doing. Because it's 1045. And I just want to say this. I'm going to keep going. Um, if you need to go, I understand. I realize I think maybe I bit off. Tracy said, you know, Jason, I think you bit off more than you can chew in the time that you have for today. And she was right. Which I should know that by now. <laughs> so if you need to go, um, do it. Um, but we'll just keep going here as, as much as we can, okay? All right. So... <clears throat> Jesus goes on and he says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. All right, so this salt, some, it's kind of different. There's lots of different theories about what does Jesus mean by salt um, because we're trying to guess at how, like, what is it referring to in the ancient world? You know, I've, in my studies I've read, like, sometimes salt was used in farming. Um, sometimes, I mean, we all know salt is used in terms of flavoring food. It's pretty common knowledge that salt has been used to preserve food. Um, what exactly does Jesus mean here? Um, his audience knew what he meant because <laughs> he just says it. Um, but I think we can discern a couple things. One is we can discern is that the salt is different. It is different. Uh, so if in our case here, we'd be different than the world that we go into. And the salt permeates. So kind of like food, for example, using that example, which is a very common one, uh, and just as likely the one that Jesus is referring to. When you salt something, the salt works through the whole food. You don't get, um, you know, if, if you've mixed it all together, if you salt it and mix it all together, you don't get a salty bite and then an unsalty bite. It's all salted. And so it, it works through, it permeates. But here's the thing that I really want us to, to focus in on, is that Jesus says this. He says, you are the salt. Already in present tense. This is not... You will be salt someday when you get it all figured out. You will be salt someday when you follow these first five things or these first hundred things. He's saying you are salt already. You are already salt. You are already the, the agents that God has uh, chosen, the church, to change this world and bring about his kingdom. You are already salt. And it's interesting too because a lot of other religions, they focus on how do you become who you should be. Whereas Christianity, we focus on living into who Jesus has already made us. Let me say that again. A lot of other religions focus on working really hard to be who you should be. As Christians, 
we follow Jesus to become who we already are, who he has already made us. It's very different. And when we start living as we already are, it changes the way we live. We stop striving to be somebody we're not. And we faithfully follow Jesus to become who he has always meant us to be. Okay. The other thing, too, is that um, this, Jesus is speaking in terms of spiritual um, reality, but also becomes, today, it is a global reality. You know, when Jesus is saying these words, there's maybe, there's, at very least there's 12, maybe a few hundred, maybe a thousand people gathered around him, which is a lot uh, of people in terms of a gathering, but in terms of the world, it's like a drop in a bucket. <laughs> Yet today, there's something like over two billion Christians throughout the world who really are salt of the earth, who really are different and yet permeating the world faithfully to differing degrees, failing at times, yes, but trying to faithfully cultivate or be a part of God's kingdom to do God's work in this world. So you might be asking yourself, okay, Jason, how do we, if we already are salty, how do we stay salty? I think we begin staying salty by following Jesus, and we begin with that by living the Sermon on the Mount. The next few weeks, what we'll be working through. If you want to read the Sermon on the Mount today or this week, do it. I think that's one of the the chief ways that we stay salty is by reading God's Word, reading the Sermon on the Mount, and begin practicing it. We've already received the grace of the Beatitudes. You've already received the grace, so it's not like you're trying to earn your place. You already know who you are, and you've already received grace. This is just practicing following Jesus faithfully, living his commands. And he says this, he says, um, if salt loses its saltiness, it gets thrown out and it's trampled by people. And on there's, it's really hard. That doesn't sound very gracious, right? But I think we're going to let Jesus' words stand. We're going to let the warning warn us that we stay faithful to him, that we don't become unsalty and face the consequences of that. Then Jesus says this. He says, you are the light of the world. Already you are. Not something you have to do to earn, but you already are because you follow him. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before people, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. If If you are salt, or if you will stay salty, you will be light. If you will stay salty, if you'll keep following Jesus, you will be light. You already are light. Light is the result of faithfulness. See, the thing is, if we make um, being light, all we are is flashy. (laughs) If we're trying to get people's attention, that's just being flashy. But if we're faithful, if we're following Jesus, and that draws people's attention, now that's light. So the goal for us is not to be flashy, it's to be faithful. It's to follow Jesus faithfully. And that's the sort of thing that people say or see. Some see it and they they persecute us. They don't like us. But others will see it and they'll say, I want that sort of life. I want what you have. I see the ways that you live. I see the joy, the peace. I see your endurance through difficult things, the way you handle it, and I want that. When we are faithful, we are light. 
And this is really a very convicting word for me because I want to be effective. And many of us want to be effective, right? We want the things we do to change people's lives and we want to see their lives transformed, but we want to be effective. And I'm thankful for Professor Bruner. He says, uh, he was teaching this, or was reading his comments on this, and he was saying, you know, that's the dangerous part. Because when we're effective, two things can go wrong. One, we can be effective and think we know what we're doing and we choose the wrong thing and it goes completely wrong and it blows up. Or, and sometimes even worse, we can be really good at it. And we know people who've done this. People who've been effective. I think of like televangelists, for example, who've been really quote-unquote effective, reached millions of people, so to speak, through television. And then we watch their lives and their ministries just blow up and hurt millions of people. So the call here from Jesus is not to be effective, it's to be faithful, to be light. But I think too about an example of someone who was faithful, who stayed faithful. I think of like Mother Teresa, for example. Her goal was never to be flashy. Her goal was never to be famous. She simply wanted to be faithful and do what God had called her to do. And through her light, through her faithfulness, people saw her good works and they praised God because of it. That's what it means to be faithful, not flashy. I think, too, about small churches. You know, Mother Teresa, we think, well, that's Mother Teresa. She's famous and did amazing things. I think about small churches around the world, small churches like this one. There's no books named after our church. I don't speak on a circuit. <laughs> there aren't millions of people downloading my sermons or our podcasts. There's none, I don't think any of you have written any church books recently, right? But we are faithfully following God here. Not flashy, but faithful. And God uses churches like ours across Canada, across North America, around the world to grow his kingdom to help people realize who he is and change their lives. Well done, good and faithful servants. So, the thing here says that you are. This is already who we are. And it's interesting because Jesus has a pretty high view of us already. I don't know, maybe that surprises some of you. Some of you here are thinking, you know, man, I feel horrible or I feel like all the stuff I've done, it just, I feel like it disqualifies me for anything good in the church. Jesus says to each of us who follow him, me included, you are salt. You are already light. That's truth. He has a high view of us. I was thinking about that, how Jesus starts with our identity. Actually, uh, Professor Bruner said this, our identity before our instruction. He begins with who we are before how we should live. He's going to get to that. We're going to get to that in a couple, actually next week. We're going to start into it but he begins with who we are. Be who you are, who Jesus has made you. We don't have to try to be somebody we're not. And I love that. I was um, thinking, I reminded again of Dallas Willard's book, The Divine Conspiracy. He has this great chapter on um, the gospel of sin management, that somehow Christianity got whittled down to just, it's a religion to help you deal with sin. That's a huge part of our faith that God has set us free from our sin, that he has saved us. But the gospel is more than just sin management. It's a new way of living. His whole book, The Divine Conspiracy, was about training versus trying. He described trying as that idea of, I'm going to try to be good. By my own willpower, I'm going to try not to mess up. 
And then we just keep messing up and messing up and messing up. It's just in us. We're broken. So he said the gospel is not about trying, not about trying to get it all right. It's about training, about practicing, following Jesus. Think about Dave and the, and the students that he teaches. You know, some of them are amazingly gifted, he tells me. Some of them, you hope for them <laughs> that they're going to be able to feed themselves. <clears throat> but they keep practicing. Because very few of them walk into his class on the first day and can make amazing things out of wood. But by the end, they're all proficient. They can do the work. Well, most of them are proficient. (laughs) That's the same for us. None of us are expected to get it right all the time. We are broken. We realize that. Let's just be honest. But we all, Jesus desires all of us to train, to practice, to be disciples. And we practice, you want to know, okay, Jason, what do we practice? We practice things like the Sermon on the Mount, which we'll get into in the next few weeks. It's not about trying, it's about training. So, the people would see our good deeds and they would praise our Father in Heaven. That's kind of the goal. All right. Missed a couple clicks. So, Jesus begins with grace, but Jesus also begins with our identity, who we are in Him. Discipleship, is not training, or sorry, is training, not trying. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, that we are constantly training. Not that we already got it figured out and that we can stop, but that we keep practicing what he's taught us to do. Keep practicing things like reading God's word, meeting together for meals, praying, fasting, serving. We keep practicing. All right, so we get to this last section here. You guys still with me? We're good? It's late, but we're good? All right, so this last section is a bigger chunk. Um, We're going to take it piece by piece. So he says, he says, Don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And I think immediately Jesus is saying this because there are probably people. He has to address a question that people were probably asking or maybe accusations that people were making. So he has to explicitly say, I am not coming to tear down the law, to tear down everything that we believe in as Jews or our culture or to insult Yahweh, the Lord our God. I've come to fulfill them. All right, so if he hasn't come to abolish them, but he's come to fulfill them, what does that mean, to fulfill them? You know, there's lots of different thoughts on this, and it really, there's all sorts of theological um, ideas and positions on it, but a couple things that I think are good for us. The one of them is to fulfill prophetically. That there was things, like so he said, the law and the prophets, that Jesus fulfills like hundreds of different prophecies. That we realize that he is the Messiah that his claims uh, or his, um, the statements that he makes about himself that we're meant to realize that he is the Messiah, not only does he make claims, but he also does things that only the Messiah would do. And so Jesus is the anointed one. He is the great king, the great savior that God had promised that would come. And he fulfills them. So in a sense, the whole Old Testament looks forward to this, to this Messiah coming to Jesus. So he has prophetically, prophetically speaking, he has fulfilled prophecies. But not only that, he has completed or accomplished the law. That's the, also the other um, sort of con- the other meaning of fulfills to complete it. Plerao is the Greek word for those of you who are interested in that sort of thing. But to fulfill it, to accomplish it. Jesus led this sinless life and then died on a cross and then rose again. He accomplished the righteousness of the law because we never could. 
That's what Paul is trying to teach in most of his letters, the Apostle Paul. Most of the New Testament are, is written by Paul in his letters trying to explain to people, an example like the letter to the Galatians, that Jesus has fulfilled this righteousness, that it's in him that we are right with God. So that because Jesus has fulfilled it, we are no longer condemned by it. We've been set free. Now this is the tricky part. You know, How do we make sense of that? A lot of people have made about the you know, breaking the law up into the moral part, the ethical, and then there's also like the ritual part. You know, because none of us here, hopefully none of us here, are sacrificing animals, right? But that was a major part of the Old Testament law. What about Sabbath? I mean, we're here on a Sunday, whereas the law spoke about, you know, honoring the Lord on Saturday. So how do we make sense of that? Well, part of it is Jesus has accomplished it. And there's something he's brought forward, and we'll see that here in a bit uh, next week, actually. When Jesus says, you have heard it said, thou shalt not, or you should not commit murder. But I say to you, Jesus shows us, he kind of fills the law full. And that's the next point. So not only has he fulfilled it prophetically, has he fulfilled prophecy, not only has he fulfilled it or accomplished it, but he's also filled the law full. Fulfilled it, filled it full. And what I mean by that is he explained it. When God gave the law, he didn't mean it for it to become like this, this, this meticulous rule of, to, mo- to modify our behavior, but actually that it would change our heart, change the way we live. See, that's where Judaism got off track in the first century, actually for pretty much since the beginning. They got so focused on the laws that they forgot that it was supposed to be about the heart, about changing who we are and how we treat people, not just giving us a bunch of laws to, to make sure we never cross. Jesus actually talks with um, his um, disciples about this later in Matthew 23. He says, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees, they tie up heavy loads and put them on men's and women's shoulder for that matter, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move it. See, in, in Judaism, in Pharisaic, Pharisaic Judaism, the idea was, if here's the law, then let's make a tradition or a human rule and, and make it move ourselves a little back a little bit further so that we don't accidentally break the law. So, for example, if you weren't supposed to work on Sabbath or Shabbat, then they'd say, well, let's not even walk on Shabbat. Well, how much walking is work? Well, let's say 100 steps is work. Okay, so you can walk 80 steps. Well, maybe that's too close. Let's make it 40 steps. And so they had these traditions of things you could and couldn't do. They had all these um, peripheral rules or man-made tradition about how to not break the law. So Jesus fulfills it. He fills it full and says, you've heard it said, thou shalt not murder. And he's saying, that means you should not even uh, have anger with your enemy or with your friend because I have already committed murder in your heart. He's talking about the heart issues. Jesus is filling the law full. Okay. And so um, with 2,000 years, we've gotten lots of chance to think about this. What does Jesus mean by fulfill? Um, and we get a better understanding that he has come to fulfill prophecy, to complete the law, but also to fill the law full to help us see what it really means for us. All right. Next, Jesus says, he says, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. And there's a lot to be said here, but let's just um, narrow it down to this, is that the law will endure. Jesus has this high view of the Old Testament of the Torah. But this is the part that I really wanted to get it to is uh, verse 19. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, 
interesting question here is, what commands is Jesus referring to? Because for the last few verses, uh, he's been talking about the Torah, the Old Testament, what we think of as the Old Testament. But I have a hunch that he's actually here. He begins talking now. It's in the context of his Sermon on the Mount. He's speaking forward to his commandments, to the commands he's giving on the Sermon on the Mount. And let me explain why. Because if he's talking about the Torah here, it creates a lot of really prickly issues of, well then, what about Jesus and how he handled the Sabbath? Or how he healed on the Sabbath? Or cleanliness rules? How do we deal with that if Jesus is referring back to the Torah? But if Jesus is referring forward to what he's about to speak in the Sermon on the Mount, that alleviates a lot of those issues. Because he's saying, if you will, whoever takes the Sermon on the Mount even the least of them, and tries to not follow them and encourages others not to follow it either, then those are the ones who have trouble. And so I think Jesus is actually referring forward to his Sermon on the Mount. I was also thinking too, because it reveals, um, this passage here also talks about not only knowing the law, but also living it. It talks about um, knowing these laws, but also practicing them. So Jesus is putting the two together head knowledge, and the way we live. All right? So if you have more questions about this, this is a big issue. And so if you have more questions about this, come talk with me. Um, you know, I looked through numerous different uh, commentaries. Um, some kind of have this view that Jesus is looking forward. Others say, no, he's obviously talking about the Old Testament, about the Torah. So it is, it's not easily decided. So if you have questions, please come talk. Lastly, Jesus says this, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, that Jesus says this fits with the fact that he's looking forward to the commands um, when he says whoever uh, looses the least of these. Because the Pharisees were known for meticulously keeping the law. And yet we're going to see in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus shows the better righteousness, the greater righteousness. Because the Pharisees weren't killing people, but they were definitely getting angry with people. And Jesus is saying, if you even get angry, you've already committed murder in your heart. So Jesus is talking about this righteousness that is more about a heart change, a heart condition, not just keeping the laws and ticking the boxes. All right? So, um, so he's talking about this righteousness that surpasses the Pharisees. Not only that, but we realize that, you know, the Pharisees were famous for keeping God's law so well. It's also going to be pretty humbling for us to think, man, Jesus, you want us to do it better than them? That's going to require grace, and you're right. It is going to require grace. And so we rely on Jesus for grace for that. The thing is, religiosity is not the answer for us. I think that's one of the things that, that Jesus is going to teach us through the Sermon on the Mount. Being really, really religious and stickler about rules and boundaries and those sort of things. It's not really what Jesus is after. He's after a heart change. That we would change how we relate to God and how we relate to each other. And that out of that, good things would come. And so we'll unpack this righteousness over the next few weeks uh, as we look through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. All right, so here's the, the last bit. So he's, Jesus begins with grace. Jesus begins with our identity. Then Jesus begins by holding the word of God high. He exalts the word of God here. He has come to fulfill the law and to lead us in following his law filled full. That's the Sermon on the Mount, that we live the way he teaches. So uh, this is how Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount. This is where he begins. 
He begins with grace. He begins with identity. And he begins with the Word of God. This sermon is not a legalistic book of laws for us to keep, for us to try and become religious zealots. This is an amazing uh, teaching on discipleship. And it begins with grace, begins with who we already are, and begins with the Word of God. Now, you know, normally I have uh, on Sunday after we go through the Word of God, I am always keen to talk about how do we apply this in our lives. This is going to be one of those Sundays where I just want you to soak it up. Just soak it up. Don't worry, we're going to get into it the next few weeks in terms of, of what it means to follow Jesus and what that looks like. But this morning, I just want you to soak up the grace. Soak up Jesus' words that you are already salt. His words that you are already light. Just keep following him. And that he has elevated the word of God high. See, imagine how this begins to change us. You know, because Christians are really tempted to become legalistic. We see it in, in churches. People come all about the letter of the law and they stop loving people. Jesus is calling us. He's calling us to love people, to follow him, to practice him, to train, to put aside the whole trying to be righteous thing, but just practice, to follow him, to follow the Sermon on the Mount, to follow him faithfully. Imagine what God will do in this church and by extension in our community if we will keep following him. Amen.